In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Since the last time that I was given the opportunity to stand here and preach, I have become a father. Little Anna is sitting there in the corner with her mom. And if this was a a mega church, this is the point at which I would have some big picture behind me, but... (laughs) When I think about being a father, the thing that... One of the things that really excites me is the opportunity to share stories with my daughter. I love stories. Um, Whether they're stories that I create from my own imagination, Stories, the stories of Lewis and Tolkien, or the stories of Disney and Pixar, and, and the list goes on and on. I really can't wait to start sharing those stories with my baby girl. I love stories, I love telling stories, and I'm quite sure that I'm not alone. The truth is, is that we love stories because stories have a certain power over us. And this power, I think, says something substantial about who we are as creatures created in the image of God. We are, to our very core, storied people. There are stories that others tell us, us both implicitly and explicitly. And there are stories that we tell ourselves, again, both implicitly and explicitly. And whether we are aware or not, these stories define us. We engage the world through our storied personalities. Every new piece of information or data we receive must take its place within our storied lives. And when it doesn't fit, we tell new stories. The stories that define us, and this is just a a sort of general summary, it could be much longer, They tell us how we should act in such and such a situation. They tell us how we should behave as husbands and wives, what it means to be men and women, and what our family should look like. Stories tell us who our parents are without DNA testing. I believe that my mom is my mom and my dad is my dad, but I've never asked them for proof. The story of their love, the story that they told me about how I came into this world, is a story I believe. Stories tell us how best the government should be run and what size it should be. Stories tell us about Republicans and Democrats and Tea Parties and the separation of church and state and social revolution. And it is stories, first and foremost, that tell us about Jesus. This is why I love being a member of a church that uses a lectionary. For years and years, quite literally, until I came to All Souls for the very first time. Um, if you regret, for whatever reason, that I'm here, the, the man who brought me here is in the back, Father <laughs> Philip. So you can kind of give him a scowl as you leave. <laughs> but quite literally, until I first came to this church, every church I had attended, the stories of Jesus were few and far between. 
We would only hear the Gospels if, by happenstance, the preacher had decided to preach on something from the Gospels. Even then, they may not have been heard. They would have been expounded upon and explained, that's at best, and at worst, they would have been abused. Um, Here at All Souls, we never abuse the text. (laughs) But here, as in many other churches around the world, perhaps even most churches, the Gospels are marched into the sanctuary at the beginning of the service. The Gospel book is held high for all to see. It is placed in a place of reverence, and it is read from every Sunday, regardless of where the rhetorical whims of the preacher might lead us. We hold this book to be sacred, and in some ways, more sacred than the rest of Scripture. It is the book that tells us the stories of Jesus. We need to hear them. We need to love them. We need to understand them, because we are storied people. But... There are at least two dangers that we need to be wary of every time we hear these stories told. The first danger is familiarity. We know these stories, and that is a good thing, a very good thing. But at the same time, familiarity leads to complacency. Our minds tune out the familiar. We have in our bedroom above our bed, an in-wall air conditioning unit. And we're from Florida. We like AC. We like it to be cold. It's big and it's loud. (laughs) I think that most people would probably, they just came over one night, would have a hard time sleeping in our bed because the noise from the AC is, is so loud. But for us, it's familiar. It's expected. Our minds tune it out and we go to sleep. So you and I must be vigilant. We must never let familiarity lull us to sleep when the Gospels are being read. We must never let them become too familiar because when they do, a significant aspect of their power is lost. The stories of the Gospel have their full effect on us when we hear them as if we were hearing them for the first time. When we place ourselves in the sandals of the crowd and listen to Jesus in prayerful submission. We listen to him, and we let him challenge, correct, and chastise us. We listen to him, and we let him surprise, shock, and startle us. We listen to him, and we let him teach us that not only is he a prophet, but much more than a prophet, he is the long-awaited Messiah. And even more than that, he is the world's true Lord, the one who shares in the divine identity of Yahweh himself, the Son of God. Familiarity is danger number one. The second danger we must be wary of is this. The stories that define and shape our lives as 21st century Americans are not the stories that define and shape the lives of Jesus and his first century audience. This warning is particularly important when we come to a text like the one we have read this morning. This should go without saying, but the world in which Jesus lived was not a world full of Baptists and Catholics, Republicans and Democrats, Tea Partiers and liberals. 
The stories that shaped Jesus' life and the lives of those around him are not our stories. Yet too often we listen to these stories as if they were intended to answer our questions. As if they were intended to make sense of our stories. Anachronism. The failure to read and understand Jesus as a first century Jew with all the stories and questions that such an existence entailed is danger number two. So then what are we to do with what we heard today? Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If this were a less formal setting, this is the point at which I would step away from the microphone and ask you all what you thought this meant. I presume that most of us, if not all of us, have heard this saying before, and if pressed, could give some reasonable explanation of what Jesus might have meant. We all know this saying so well that when we hear it again, we are all in danger, myself especially, of hearing again only what we have heard before. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Our challenge today and every time we read the Gospels is to listen prayerfully and submissively to Jesus. To listen anew. To listen as if for the very first time. So when we come to a text like this, we are in danger not only of familiarity, but also of letting the seriousness of the scene pass over us like a gentle breeze that we barely notice. This question... Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Raises the threat level to red. When St. Matthew says that the Pharisees were plotting how to entangle Jesus in his talk, what they intend is no mere intellectual competition, no mere mental jousting that ends with both participants smiling, shaking hands, and wishing each other well on their future endeavors. No, this is a serious question. When Jesus was only 10 years old, there had been a man from Galilee named Judas. Josephus says, Under the administration of Caponius, procurator of Judea, who had the power of life and death put into his hands by Caesar, it was that a certain Galilean whose name was Judas prevailed with his countrymen to revolt. And he said that they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to Caesar and would submit to mortal men as their lords instead of God. Judas, a Galilean, had started a revolt over taxes. Judas started the revolt and Rome ended it. The punishment for these revolutionaries, these men who had faced, who when faced with the question of Caesar and taxes, delivered their no with the sharp end of a long sword. The punishment for these men was crucifixion. Now put yourself in Jesus' sandals. You are another Galilean. You have been doing things and saying things that make you look like a revolutionary. Even if you had done nothing else, It was only days earlier that you had been welcomed into the city of David with shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, you hadn't come with an army and your first actions weren't against the Roman Empire. But nonetheless, your actions have put you on Caesar's map. Caesar will tolerate no co-claimants to authority. 
and you know this. You have seen the crosses. And then here comes the Pharisees and the Herodians. Judas, Judas's second in command had been a Pharisee by the name of Zadok, and the Herodians, as far as we know, were those whose livelihood depended on the Herodian dynasty, whose livelihood in turn depended upon the tax. They come to Jesus and they set the trap, and the trap is obvious. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says no, the weight of Rome will crush him. If he says yes, then quite simply he can't be who the people think he is. What would it mean to be the Messiah, the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, if after all he planned to leave Rome in charge? The questioners are saying to Jesus, if you are who the people think you are, then it is time to come out of the shadows and say so clearly. If he says yes, Rome will crush him, problem solved. If he says no, then he will lose his power over the people, problem solved. But Jesus is, as we might expect, more clever than their trap. First, he asks for the coin. But this is no mere visual demonstration. See, we need, to, we need to understand these things as we read the passage. The coin itself was blasphemous. The denarius that was handed over to Jesus was stamped with the garland portrait of Tiberius. That itself would have violated the second commandment. And as for the inscription on the coin... On the back it read, High Priest. And on the front, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So much for the first commandment. And here is that blasphemous coin, a sign of Israel's servitude to Rome in the hands of the disciples of the Jewish leaders. There in the temple is the dreaded coin, the coin that claims that Augustus is God and that Tiberius, the reigning Caesar, is not only his son but the high priest, the one through whom all the world had access to God. So when Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this? I don't think we should hear that as a, a calm debate type question. Who, whose likeness and inscription is this? The coin is idolatrous. Whose inscription is this? Who dared put their face on the coin? Who dared write this about themselves? That they were God? It wasn't us. It was Caesar. Then give back to Caesar what is his. All of a sudden... What Jesus means isn't so obvious. If Caesar is idolatrous, if he is setting himself up as an idol, if his claims are fundamentally contrary to the claims of Yahweh and the people of God, then what could Jesus mean? Why bring out the coin? Why point to the idolatrous image and inscription if all he wanted to do was to tell people, be good, obedient, tax-paying citizens? but make sure you love God too. 
about 200 years earlier in an event celebrated every year by the festival of Hanukkah. A Jewish priest by the name of Mattathias began a revolution against the Seleucid Empire and then passed the reins of this revolution over to his son Judas, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, with these words. You shall rally around you all who observe the law and avenge the wrong done to your people. Give back to the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. Mattathias said, give back to the Gentiles in full. Jesus said, using almost exactly the same verb, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Mattathias was calling for the forceful, violent overthrow of the Jewish oppressors. But is that what Jesus intends to say? Is this some coded reference to the Maccabees? Is it meant to signify that the revolution is about to begin? It is time to give back to Caesar and his minions all that they are owed? Well, what does Jesus say next? And give to God the things that are God's. This is the language of Israel's call to worship the one true God against all competing, all competing authorities. You see, we've already sung these words this morning. Listen again to the words of Psalm 46. Notice how the psalmist moves from idolatry to the proper worship of God. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. Just like that coin. But it is Yahweh who made the heavens. Glory and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto Yahweh, you families, of the, you families of the peoples. Give unto Yahweh glory and strength. Give unto Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the heathen, Yahweh is king. Say among the heathen, Yahweh is king. Is that what Israel had done? Had she said to Caesar that Yahweh is king? Or does the coin in the pocket of the disciples of the Jewish leaders suggest something else? Had Israel compromised? Had Israel been willing to give to Caesar what Caesar demanded, but unwilling to give to God what was rightfully his? What then has Jesus actually said? Did he say yes? Did he say that the Jewish people should go on paying their taxes to Rome with their blasphemous and idolatrous coins? I don't think so. Did he say no? Did he say that Caesar is a liar and a false god, that the only appropriate response, to the, the, only respo the only appropriate response of the people of God is open rebellion like Mattathias and Judas before him? I don't think that's right either. Did he say none of these things? Did he say all of them? Is it any wonder that his questioners went away amazed? He has said nothing, and he has said everything. You see, despite how this text is often used, I don't think it says much about how Christians should be involved in government, about what it means to be a good citizen, about paying taxes that we know will be used for unjust means. Um, the separation of church and state and where and if political and religious discourse should overlap. 
Jesus seems to have responded simultaneously with a qualified yes and with a qualified no, but put the antitheses into sharp distinction. Caesar's claims, the claims of the coin, and God's claims cannot coexist. Caesar's claims were contrary to the claims of Yahweh. To God alone was due the titles that Caesar claimed for himself. Israel's response to the pagan idolatry of Rome should not have been compromise. They should not have had the coin in their pocket. I like to imagine Jesus saying, does anyone have one of those blasphemous coins and disciples going, oh yeah, yeah, it's right here. (laughs) Um, Instead of compromise, Israel should have responded like the psalmist. Say among the heathen that Yahweh is king. Or as we might say today, as those grafted into the family of Abraham, Jesus is Lord. I love these words of St. Paul. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's the confession that saves. Despite all the contemporary debate about what the gospel is, that's the confession. Notice that Paul does not say that you must believe with your mind that Jesus is Lord. That is certainly implied. But what Paul says is that you must confess that Jesus is Lord. You must say among the heathen, Jesus is Lord, Yahweh is king, and you are not. But Paul knows full well that it will do us no good to confess that a dead man is Lord. You see, if Jesus was just a moral teacher, his morals would have lasted. You don't need to be alive to have a moral influence. But if he is Lord, that's something different. If he is dead, then he has gone the same route as all those before him who claim such titles. But if he is risen, then he is the world's true Lord and Caesar is not. Unlike Caesar, who contradicted the claims of Yahweh, Jesus' claims do not. When Jesus sat down, as we heard this morning in adult ed, when he finally took his seat upon the world's true throne, he sat down not upon an earthly throne, but at the right hand of God. That is our confession to the pagan world, to the Caesars and devils, and all those who contradict the claims of God. Jesus is Lord. He is risen. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is Lord. But it is not just the Caesars and the devils who need to hear this confession. Is it? We need to hear it as well. In fact, maybe, just maybe, we've emphasized the wrong words in this text. Maybe what we need to hear Jesus saying today is not render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Maybe the words that we need to hear today are these. You hypocrites. I am in no position to speak for any of you, so I will not. 
I can only speak from my own experience, but I know, despite my strong and firm belief that Jesus is Lord, that there are still areas of hypocrisy affecting my life and my worship. There are, so to speak, blasphemous coins in my pocket. Perhaps you feel the same way. Perhaps you need, just like I do, to let Jesus look you in the eyes and say, You hypocrite. After this sermon, we will confess together through our creed that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And shortly after, we will sit or kneel and we will confess our sins in penitence and faith because despite our confession, we are all hypocrites. Today, while it is still called today, confess to yourself that Jesus is Lord. Give to Jesus the worship and glory and honor that is due to Yahweh alone. Let Caesars and all other idols have their blasphemous coins. Give to God. Give to Jesus the glory to his name. Amen.